Our readings for this morning are in reverse order, the New Testament, followed by the Old. And so our word from the New Testament this morning is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. In the third chapter, beginning in verse 2 and continuing through verse 11, he's talking about his own conversion experience here in a raw and impassioned way. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Beware, Paul writes, of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our Old Testament reading from this morning, for this morning, is from the book of the prophet Isaiah, speaking to that very God, beginning in verse 16 and continuing through verse 21. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Thus saith the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior, they lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Here ends this reading from God's holy word.
Taken together, the readings for this morning from the Old and the New Testament paint a a picture of a God of faithfulness, of a God who hears the cries of his people and who, in his perfect will and timing, responds, sometimes in unexpected but most glorious ways. Our readings remind us of the past, even as they point us to the future. And in a sense, this is also the case with this whole season of Lent that we are in. It reminds us of our past as individuals and as a race, and it points us to the future as well. Such reflections as these can be a bit disconcerting, as being reminded of our past is not always the most pleasant of things. After all, just about every one of us has baggage from decades or years or weeks or days or even moments ago that they would just as soon forget forever. But the scriptural record does not lend itself to amnesia, just the opposite. The Bible is full of recounting. The story of the people of God gets told and told and retold by author after author in generation after generation. It is important to their unique identity, even if it doesn't always paint them in the most flattering of light. But it is worth remembering that the Word of God in the Bible is for the people of God, but it is not about the people of God. This is God's story. God is the one who has chosen to make covenant with a people who are admittedly flawed. They are disobedient. They are self-centered. They are sinful. The Bible does not whitewash this fact, for it is central to the salvation story that is being recounted. If we were all a bunch of choir boys and girls, then we wouldn't need a Savior, now would we? But we are not... And therefore, we do. Though this is indeed an undeniable part of the human condition, that we have awareness of our transgressions, in Isaiah, the word of the Lord reminds us that we are not to dwell on such things. We are not to forget, yet we are not to fixate on the past. What's past is indeed past, and we need not focus our attention on the past, but rather to the future, a future which the Lord is even now authoring. Do you not perceive it? And so in this season of Lent, as we reflect on our condition and on God's merciful and gracious accommodation to that condition, 
We hear this morning the words of two contributors to the scriptural record who were separated by a span of several hundred years, yet whose insight into the covenant relationship between God and God's people share many things in common. The Apostle Paul's word to his brothers and sisters at Philippi, well, they may strike us as a bit egocentric, but again, the words of this text are raw and unadorned. He may well have simply been trying to make a point about his own dramatic conversion without effort to place himself on a pedestal, for he confesses in a letter to his fellow evangelist Timothy that he himself, Paul, is chief among sinners. Regardless, the central message which he is here conveying is that however good he thought he once had it, he's subsequently come to see his past in a new and less positive light. That which he once held dearest, that to which he had given himself completely, perhaps even obsessively, he now views with utter contempt This conversion of thought, of course, was not something he woke up to one day. He didn't achieve this radical transformation through anything that he did. Again, this was completely outside of beyond his control. In his perfect and infinite wisdom, God saw fit to intervene in Paul's life in a most miraculous way. And from that time on, he was never the same. He was, in fact, a new creation. Reflecting on this metamorphosis, Paul can now see what a wretch he had been before. He sees the life he had been living as, in the words of this translation, rubbish. Other biblical scholars have substituted even harsher, more descriptive language here that emphasizes the total contempt that he now has for all that he once aspired to do and to be. Paul's story of an individual undergoing such a complete and a rapid makeover is one of the New Testament's most pivotal events in the life of the church the covenantally claimed people of God. Our Isaiah text lifts up for us one of the Old Testament's most pivotal events in the life of the Hebrews, the covenantally claimed people of God. It begins with a reference to what God has done for his people in the remarkable events of the exodus from Egypt. As he provided escape for the Israelites, by cutting off their pursuers in the very waters he had parted to let his people pass, a new era in the people of God was born. No longer slaves to Pharaoh, they were now free to be servants of the Lord. We know, of course, that it wasn't the easiest thing for the Hebrews to adjust to in their new situation. There was more than a little grumbling by the people as they were led through the wilderness. They were suddenly away from familiar surroundings. They were suddenly without familiar food. They were suddenly faced with a whole new way of living 
It was hard. But when you recall what God has done for you, don't dwell on the minor inconveniences. Consider the bigger picture. That's the part of the message Isaiah is conveying to the people who, now having occupied the land of promise for generations by this point, are again facing a time of turmoil and of uncertainty. Throughout the years of oppression in Egypt, the time of wilderness wandering that followed, God was in the midst of it all. He was making something new of the Hebrews, turning his chosen people into a nation that had not existed before. It was, of course, in the long run, the best thing that could ever have happened to them. As the words of the prophet Isaiah are being uttered, God is still at work molding and shaping a people. Again, the tempering of the Hebrews might be rough in the heat of battle. The refining of the Israelites might take place in part in exile. But through the trials will come something that did not exist before. This is the new thing that God is working on for his people, and it will pale in comparison to what had been there before. Several hundred years later, a Hebrew descendant of the Exodus by the name of Saul of Tarsus also has a difficult adjustment period. After the best thing that could have happened to him, happened to him. In his story, there's a microcosm of the grand narratives of the Hebrews during the Exodus and the exile. The same God who had engineered the salvation of his people from the lands of Egypt and then of Babylon was engineering the salvation of Saul from the corruption of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. It's rather ironic that the religious leaders of the Hebrew people located in the seat of religious and political power of the nation would have themselves gotten so confused over the identity of the God they had been serving and misconstrued his laws for living faithfully as his people. But that's exactly what seems to have happened over time. Both literally and figuratively, Paul was stunned as he was made aware of the truth. And that very truth, who is also the way and the life, called into being a new creation who was so radically different that a new name had been affixed to him. All well and good, I suppose, for the Israelites and their difficult path to settlement in the land of promise and for Saul, who became Paul, and arguably he, the greatest of the apostles of the risen Lord Jesus. But what's all this got to do with us? Well, I think at least in part, is that it serves as a reminder that our God is a busy God. He is active in human affairs. He is working all things for our good, even if we don't see it in the moment. Behold, the Lord is doing a new thing. He has done it for the Hebrews in the Old Testament. He has done it for Paul in the New. He is doing it for us in the present. Last Sunday afternoon, when members from all four of the originally chartered dissenting churches of 
Somerset County gathered to celebrate the 350th anniversary of the grand jury decision that specified the location and the schedule of worship of these four congregations. We listened to a number of speakers who, with a nod to our collective past, invited us to remember, but not to dwell on it or in it. The good old days may have been good, they may have been very good, but what God has in store for us now is somehow even better. We don't know. We can't know the specifics of what God has in store for us, but we do know quite a bit about the God who is authoring all these things. He is good and very good indeed. He loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have new life. Not old life. Not even renewed old life. But new life. Even in this season of Lent, Christians are resurrection people. We worship one who has overcome death and won the victory for us that we too may be raised to new life. Through our faith in him, we have become new creatures, new creation. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. Therefore, we do well to remember how it is that we got to where we are, but not to dwell on the things of the past. The creator God who made the heavens and the earth is still at work creating amazing things. And that same God has invited us not just to spectate and to appreciate his magnificent handiwork, but to participate in the holy act of creation itself. The people of God have been freed from their past to participate in the forging of a future in which the kingdom of God is manifest to all peoples in all nations throughout all the world. And for that we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen. <laughs>